0: You may have noticed something about the name Knight Frank, the second of those two words in particular. Frank. We've always prided ourselves on being just that with our clients, and never more so than now. So if you're thinking of selling or letting your home, contact your local Knight Frank office. We'll give you a frank opinion of its value, frank advice on the best pricing strategy, and a frank estimation of how quickly it will sell or let. What else would you expect from Knight Frank? your partners in property.
1: Hello, and welcome to At Home With, a podcast in the residential business at Night Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts, their clients and our partners. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with interesting people from across the world about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Night Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today, in honour of our 125th anniversary celebrations, I'm joined by Alistair Elliott, our senior partner and group chairman. It was an absolute joy to chat to Alistair and we had such an interesting conversation about how the global financial crisis impacted him and shaped his response to the Covid-19 pandemic, why confidence hasn't always come naturally to him and how he very nearly didn't make it onto our graduate scheme. Alistair began his career back in 1983 on our graduate scheme and spent the first 20 years of his career in the office sector, focusing particularly on development and agency before moving into expanding our commercial business. In 2006, Alistair was promoted to head of commercial and subsequently became our senior partner and group chairman in 2013. Beyond tonight, Frank, Alistair is a prominent member of the wider property industry. He is a land aid trustee, a member of the BPF Policy Committee, a regular contributor to advisory committees and member of judging panels, and frequently writes for key property media columns, as well as attending a range of broadcast interviews around the globe. Alistair, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast.
0: Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to join you.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for being here. We're very excited to have you on. Um, How are things going at the moment? Do
0: you know what I'm doing? I'm doing well. I've just tried to have a few days off uh, at home, which is an odd experience when you're trying to holiday in what has become your workplace. But it's good to have the financial year done and behind us. It's good to see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of a return to normality so um i'm in good spirits
1: amazing and how has on the topic of the the past year and kind of needing a bit of time off from it all, how has the past year been for you from both a personal and a professional perspective
0: that is a very big question it would be wrong to say it wasn't a roller coaster year um, to go right back to the beginning just over 12 months ago now we were contemplating circumstances that none of us had really ever envisaged contemplating, personally or professionally. So to work out what was best for the business at the same time as working out how one's life, life was going to be affected personally was a, was a big conundrum. But fortunately, with the support of my family at home and with the support of my colleagues at work, you know, we set about our plans, which we may come on to, and we we got to it, and the business responded brilliantly. And then the markets opened, and then they've adjusted, and some closed again, and uh, the, there was excitement to see markets re-engaging and deals still being done, which at one stage we weren't sure whether there would be any volumes to the residential or commercial markets. Uh, And we've completed another financial year with a huge amount of credit to every single person in the organisation. It's been completed very positively indeed and beyond any of what our expectations would have been 12 months ago.
1: Mm, No, that's that's such a positive take on it. And I know a lot of people have kind of struggled with the past year of not being able to feel quite right. They've struggled to adapt or it's just been quite an unsettling time. Have you found that or have you been able to sort of adjust yourself and take it in your stride a little? I
0: don't, I don't think I've, I've taken it in my stride because one simply didn't know what one was dealing with. Uh, I had never worked from home really for a single day and on the 23rd of March 2020, along with every other person in the organisation, we all work from home. And I found that tough. I found it tough to manage or build a business whilst working from a home office, which I haven't ever really tested. But again, huge credit to everyone in the organisation. First and foremost, our infrastructure worked. So we established we could do our job at home. We then had to get the financial year 2019-2020 completed with everybody working from home which we did and again fortunately because we'd had 10 or 11 months of normalish trading we had a really strong financial year relatively speaking and we were able to plan the covid experience accordingly and we we were very cautious don't don't get me wrong I, i hope rightly so to use the old adage we planned for the worst and hoped for the best. And we set about all of our management for the 2020-21 financial year, as though lockdown was gonna be really, really tough on trading volumes and that our income was going to be similarly affected. Uh, and, and, And as you know, we asked everybody to help reshape our cost base according to what we felt the income could be. If it was wrong, then we were in a good position. And if it was right, then we wouldn't regret doing it. And and, and actually, everybody got on with it. We worked from home satisfactorily. Um, We clearly made a, a large number of people furloughed to start with because we simply didn't know what was going to happen gradually. The furloughed workforce came back pretty much exclusively by September everybody was back Um, we were then able to reinstate the salary levels that we'd asked everybody to sacrifice and and the business gathered its momentum and 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 even when we went into the post-Christmas proper lockdown again everybody responded really well then the commercial and residential markets and our businesses overseas everybody continued to perform really really well and that gave us the confidence to return those sacrificed salaries that people had foregone for the period between May and September. It was a huge delight to be able to do it Um, but it was to every single person's credit that we were able to do it Uh, and also as, as, as people may remember when we announced our results back in September we were able to commit to return our furlough grants because we didn't need them for the purposes the government had intended to. They served a great purpose because it enabled us to buy some time but when we realised that our trading this year was going to exceed our expectations we felt it was right and proper and and subsequently as I've said we, we, we reinstated people's salaries and encouraged everybody to do the best they could in the financial year, the year that's just ended, end of March, and everyone has done a superb job.
1: Mm, no, that's so positive. And I think after the past year, it's, it's lovely to hear some sort of optimism and some positive stories coming out of it, despite all the awful things that have happened. And I think that's a really nice way to look at it. It's acknowledging all the the negative stuff that's happened, but choosing to look at it in a more positive way. And we'll definitely go on to talk about lockdown and COVID and all the myriad things that come within that later on in our conversation. But to begin every podcast, I like to take everybody all the way back to the start of their careers to, to really understand what it was that got them to where they are today. And as I mentioned in your introduction, you studied for a degree in real estate before joining our graduate scheme back in 1983. But where did this sort of impetus to pursue a career in property come from?
0: Well, it certainly wasn't done with any great intention to start with. Um, I I grew up on a farm. Uh, My father, to whom I was very close, was a a farm manager. Um, I, I think my default very early on in life was that I would just be a farmer, a farm manager. Of course, being a farm manager, I had no farm to take over Uh, From him as such, but I loved the countryside. I loved growing up on a farm Um, I I got some work experience uh, when I was still at school with a firm of auctioneers in uh, Swindon, which is where I grew up near Swindon in Wiltshire and That gave me a taste for something beyond farming, although it was auctioneering relating to uh, livestock and then um, I got given an opportunity to do some work experience at Knight Frank in in London Uh, and that obviously was with a commercial bias because the guy who introduced me to Knight Frank was on the commercial side of the business himself and his advice early on was, look if you fancy going into farming you can do that rightly or wrongly, you can do that later in life, go and study commercial estate management. And by this stage I'd given up any ideas of um, being a doctor for which I certainly wasn't bright enough and being a policeman for which I almost certainly wasn't brave enough. So um, actually I came to London to do some work experience and I I loved it. I loved loved the adventure of visiting London. I loved the experience of being in an office and um, probably incredibly naively it gave me enough of a flavour to think, you know, there's something to this. And, and so I explored the idea of doing an estate management degree. I had no idea what that really meant, but I knew it was property related and it wasn't farming. And so I thought, why not? And I explored it and I, and I just managed to get enough out of my A-levels to squeeze a position on an estate management degree course, as you say, in. 1980 at what was then Birmingham Polytechnic, and and off I went to do three years of estate management degree.
1: And and what was it about about Night Frank in particular? When you said that you you came to London and you you loved the experience, and it it sort of sold it to you then. But what in particular was it? What got you so excited? And and almost me because I think some people they they pursue vocational sort of degrees with a view of going into a certain industry but sometimes I mean I did it for instance when I was halfway through my degree I decided that I really definitely didn't want to go into politics and and completely change tack and I think some people get halfway through the degrees and think actually not for me so what was it in particular that really sold you to it and has kept you I suppose in it for your your entire career?
0: Do you know what? It's difficult to answer that. Other than I can say that the limited amount of work experience I got within Knight Frank gave me enough of a flavour. Uh, whether it was the camaraderie in the business, Knight Frank and Rutley, as it was then in Hanover Square, or just the excitement of coming in and out of London. Because you've got to bear in mind, uh, you know, London back then for me was a was a an adventure. As I say, it was a metropolis. It was an exciting. Uh, you know, day trip. I used to get the train early in the morning. I used to go home most evenings or sleep on somebody's floor or a bed if I was really lucky. Um, uh, I just found the whole thing exciting. I'm not sure at that stage I was particularly excited about real estate. I didn't know enough about it from a commercial perspective, but I enjoyed the experience. And, And that gave me sufficient momentum, as I say, to, to pursue doing a degree in estate management, which, again, I have to be honest and say I wasn't really sure what I was going to be taught to do. Um, but, but, but I enjoyed the course. I enjoyed being in Birmingham. Uh, and so I, I, I kept going with it. Uh, I, I continued to do some work experience when I could during the holidays in the hope that eventually I might end up working in London and who knows, at night, Frank. But that was all very speculative at that stage.
1: Mm. And I mean, I'm breaking the the podcast fourth wall a little bit by by asking this question and talking about this, but um, something we've spoken about before in conversation was that you didn't all necessarily get onto our graduate scheme in the most conventional way. And I wondered if you'd mind telling the story of how exactly that you ended up on our graduate scheme eventually.
0: (laughs) Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a lesson in luck or a lesson how not to do it. I'm not sure which others will judge. But um, so I had done some work experience. Uh, the gentleman who I'm still in touch with to this day, Peter Noist, who introduced me tonight, Frank, and was kind enough to give me some work experience. He then left the firm. And um, so his guidance disappeared. and time came to pass and I'd be given the right signals about potentially having a position on the graduate scheme but don't ask me why had lost my focus I like to think I'm a relatively organised person but on this occasion I messed up big time and when eventually my brain engaged about applying for work post my degree at Birmingham Polytechnic it became apparent that I'd missed the slot for applying on the graduate scheme at Knight Frank. Worse than that, but when I made inquiries, it was full. The guy who I'd done some work with, Howard Williston, who retired from the partnership not that long ago, uh, said, look, you're going to have to come down and see the head of the commercial business at the time, a gentleman called Brian Hatcher, uh, and see what he thinks. So um, rather taken aback, I I I was left with no choice but but to get on the train from Birmingham, go down to Hanover Square and, and, and meet Brian Hatcher, who I'd never met before, or not that I could recall. And um, perhaps it will be of, to nobody's surprise that he was, of course, uh, a, a delightful gentleman who ran the commercial business at the time. And I went into his office, I'll never forget it to this day, and I sat opposite him. And we had a discussion and he said, I've got, you know, the problem is, you know, you you did okay with your work experience, but you've missed the slot on our graduate schemes full. And um, he said, but having thought about it, what I would be prepared to do is to offer you a job. Graduates who start on the programme at the moment are being paid uh, £5,000 a year. I'm going back to 1983 now. But if you're prepared to start on £4,500 a year, I'll give you a place. Well, I was out of my seat and around the desk shaking his hand before he could complete his sentence because I was so thrilled with the prospect of a job. Of course, with hindsight and wanting to become a negotiator, what I should have done is to suggest £4,750 and see where we got to. But I was, as I say, I was so keen to to get a job and be able to ring my parents that any thoughts of negotiations evaporated. uh, And I was only too pleased to shake Mr. Hatcher, as he would most definitely have been at the time, uh, to shake Mr. Hatcher's hand and accept a position on the graduate scheme in September 1983. And I still remember the perfect pleasure I had in ringing my parents on the train from London back up to Birmingham to confirm subject to confirmation in writing I had managed to get a position on the Knight Frank and Rutley as it was then graduate program in September 1983.
1: I love that story because I think it, it demonstrates the the truth of behind the scenes of, of how a lot of people end up where they are. I think so often we see a very linear route in You're, you get you get on the graduate scheme and it all goes perfectly and you only hear the positive stories and I think actually, it's quite nice to hear that sometimes it doesn't necessarily always go to plan and you do have to take an alternative route into things. And something that I wanted to ask you off the back of that is that I think it takes a certain amount of innate sort of drive and and self-belief and determination to, to go about actually putting yourself out there and saying, okay, I, I accept that I I didn't apply to the graduate scheme on time for whatever reason, but I am so driven and determined and I want this so badly that I'm going to just put myself out there no matter whether it's a no or a yes and just see what I can do to, to, to get onto that. And I think not... I don't think most people would actually do that. I think some people just accept it and say, oh gosh, no, it's it's too intimidating a prospect to have to admit that I, I may have done something wrong or I may not have done things in the traditional way and actually to go about and say, look, I, I really want this. Would you say that, that that sort of drive and determination and almost confidence comes naturally to you in those sorts of situations? Would you always have put yourself out there or was it just because it was something that you were really, really passionate about?
0: I don't think I knew enough about property to be passionate about it at that stage, but I do know that I needed to get work. I did have an eagerness to get into a job, to get into a career. I I, I, I would suggest that, particularly from a farming fraternity, there uh, there is an innate hard work, Um, ingredient to that community, I suggest. I I believe it's often overlooked or not acknowledged, but I think the farming fraternity is actually uh, really hardworking. And so from a young age, the only way I could, I ever had any money was by doing jobs. Uh, I I, I sold apples, I ran a mobile disco for a few years, I did I did all sorts of different things in order to earn money because that's the only way I would have any money to spend. And so there was never any doubt in my mind that I had to I had to get out there and get a job. Um, I don't believe I was overconfident about getting a job. I just knew I had to get one and, it, and it's a difficult um, it's a difficult thing to articulate in today's world because I know agendas have changed. But I was also always very clear that in order to get on, I had to work hard. And when I did my work experience at Night Frank, which I thoroughly enjoyed, as I said, I I think I worked probably quite hard. And and whether I was any good at it or not at that stage, I doubt very, very much. But but, but I believe the fact that I was prepared to roll up my sleeves and get on with it gave me the opportunity to get onto that graduate scheme by the skin of my teeth.
1: Yeah, and I think that's... That's a really important point because I think work ethic and that tenacity is often, I think, underplayed. I think people assume that with an industry like property, for instance, it's all about the connections you have. It's who you know, not what you know. And sometimes it can seem quite an exclusive profession, which I don't think is, is true to what it actually is. And I think it's important to recognise that fundamentally with, with anything you do, it's that hard work that, that gets you to where you want to be. 100%.
0: I think attitude is really, really important. And I would guide anybody, whatever it is you want to do, just try and find something you want to do, because it will make all of the difference. I mean, when I started at Knight Frank, I make no bones about it. I was state educated from Birmingham Polytechnic. And, and that was not the perceived DNA of a typical Knight Frank graduate. Um, And I probably wasn't typical. But I think it is a great accolade to the management at Knight-Frank back in the early 1980s that even then, they were prepared to give somebody outside of the traditional mould an opportunity. I didn't see it in those terms at the time. But it's worth reflecting upon because I really, really believe for those who have got hunger and drive real estate and night frank is a very very broad church we've got more to do but i believe it is a broad church
1: Mm, no absolutely and something that i'm always really interested to ask people who have reached certain heights in their career be that uh middle management or be that even further above and getting getting all the way to the top is what sort of characteristics you feel that you needed to get to that stage? I suppose what I'm trying to ask is whether you feel like you are naturally suited to positions of authority, whether you've always felt comfortable in sort of management roles, because I think some people, they don't, they feel uncomfortable having to to sort of delegate and and do public speaking and all the different things that come into that into those sorts of roles so have you always felt comfortable in in roles such as the one that you're in now or or any other sort of management roles throughout your career or is that something that you've had to to work on to develop those skills to sit comfortably within positions of management and leadership
0: very good question I'm let's start from the beginning Um, there was absolutely no comprehension in my mind when i started on the grad scheme in 1983 that one day i might have a management job let alone a senior management job so um, i i didn't have any concept of promotions partnership structure uh, management in those early days and i don't anticipate many people would have but i did have drive and I pushed on and whenever I was presented with another opportunity, if I felt I wanted to give it a go, I did everything I could to do it. And I would say to anybody now, whatever you want to do, and let's say it's in real estate, do it and do it with the best of your ability. I don't see any other option. You know, why would you only do something half-heartedly? And if you do it to the best of your ability, then the opportunities that present themselves may well surprise you. They certainly surprise me. But then you've got to want to do them. So so I, I wouldn't do this job unless I wanted to do it. I wouldn't have run the commercial business unless I wanted to do it. I think somebody who ends up being forced into a role, whatever role that is, early in your career, middle of your career, later in your career unless you want to do it you're probably not going to do a good job so you know what don't bother but i make no bones about the fact whilst i have learnt a huge amount every step of the way and i'm still learning you've got to you've got to want to do it and and the more you take on the harder it is and you're learning all the time
1: Mm, yeah, I agree. And I think, I think it's important to recognise, actually, that not everybody is necessarily suited to and or wants to actually be in in positions of, of leadership or positions of, of power, so to speak. I think there is a lot of conversation around always looking to the next thing, and always saying, well, you're at this stage now, but what are you going to be doing in five years time? What are you going to be doing in 10 years time? And I think that pressure sometimes trips people up and and then they end up taking things as you said that they don't necessarily fit into and they don't necessarily want to do and do you think I mean I, I suppose I'm, I'm interested to know whether you as I think you've you've alluded to it a few times that you didn't necessarily have that that vision of, of always wanting to be okay I've seen your partners where I want to end up but do you think that actually the opposite is true that if you live a little bit more in the moment and you focus a bit more on the present you immerse yourself in what you're doing on the day-to-day you you have less of a you put less of a pressure on yourself to get to those positions and so by dint of that you automatically are more likely to enter into them because you're you're not so worried about the things that are going to trip you up you're more focused on the things that you're doing which will enable you to get there just by dint of doing them
0: yes look I, I, I I don't think there is anything wrong with anyone saying you know what in five or ten years time I would quite like to still be doing what I'm doing today because I love it but I do think they should always strive to be better because I believe everybody can be better if you if you learn every day from your job or whatever it is you choose to do you'll get better at it so The one thing I would encourage people to think about, I I certainly don't think there is any problem saying I really want to keep doing what I'm doing for the next five, 10 or 15 years. You know, I was an office agent for 20 plus years and I loved it, but I certainly wanted to learn every year and be better as a consequence. And the other thing that I think has changed is that I I really would like to encourage more people just to take a bit more time to reflect upon what it is they do want to do and how they're going to get there. Don't be in such a rush. You can't start at a firm like Knight Frank straight out of college and know what it is you want to do in 15 years time. It's impossible because you've got no experience of either the firm or the sector. So put your heart and soul into it and see what happens. Don't sit expecting that's not a characteristic That I like or would encourage put your heart and soul into it and see what happens for a few years is not a bad thing at all and I think a little more patience in that regard would be would be good on many people's behalf
1: Mm, yeah and I think that what you were saying there about about patience and and just taking things a little bit more as they come I think that links quite nicely into something else that I wanted to ask which was about mental health and on this podcast we talk a lot about mental health I always try and weave it somehow organically into conversations with people because I think it's it's conversations that we should definitely be having um especially in the times that we're living at the moment after everything that's happened in the past year and I think sometimes we hear a lot about mental health from people who are younger perhaps at the beginning of their career because naturally our generation's been taught to talk about it a bit more but i think talking about mental health with people who are in positions of leadership and who who are at kind of a further stage in their career is also really important because as much as it's it's sort of perceived that you have to be quite stoic to be at the top and you do have to put on a bit of a front and and have that sort of leadership visage up i suppose i think sometimes it's it's useful to kind of look behind the scenes and say, actually, it's not always easy. And there have been moments where it's not felt okay. And I was wondering whether in the position that you're in, being in such a position of leadership, or in fact, any point throughout your career, if you've ever struggled with that sort of pressure and whether it's had any impact on your mental health.
0: Look, the first thing to say is that I am acutely aware that everybody is different, everybody responds to the circumstances around them uh, differently. And there is, a, there is a great deal for us to learn about the individual experiences that everyone has, whether it is in their private life or their work life or a combination of the two. And, and it is incredibly important to the group executive board at night, Frank and myself that we are engaged with the mental health issues of the moment and the well-being of everyone that works within our partnership and i'm sure we've got more to learn whilst i've never suffered myself knowingly from any mental health issues like like everybody in the firm if you're not affected directly you're certainly affected indirectly and i'm aware of some of the really difficult periods that some friends family and people within the firm have had and indeed continue to have and we need to learn and adapt and embrace them and look after them as best we possibly can so i i it's a it's a key part of our agenda i i think for me personally as i've developed my career i've i've often had moments of self-doubt I think any manager has got to come, come across relatively confidently, but I, I've had moments of enormous self-doubt. I've, I've made mistakes, I've made wrong decisions. Um, sometimes decision-making is a very lonely place. Knight Frank is probably the most collegiate business on the planet and there's always somebody I can ask, but ultimately some decisions rest with a team leader or, or the head of a subdivision or with me, and I, and I, and and, and that's that. That's something that that um, you know. It's difficult. It's difficult to deal with on occasions. But fortunately, the the, the network of people that we have within the firm and, and and the people I've worked with for many years are incredibly supportive and helpful. And and ultimately, you know, what we we get through things and we make the right decisions. But I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's easy and i wouldn't say i haven't had moments of significant self-doubt i've i've i certainly have
1: Mm, no thank you for being so so open and vulnerable about that because i think while it's it's important also to recognize that you may not have suffered in a traditional way with mental health, I think it's really valuable for people to hear that it's not always been easy, and that you do have those those moments of self self doubt. So thank you for for opening up about that, and to to bring us on to something a little bit more property related. Um, I wondered if when you look back on your career. And I know this is a, it's a very broad question and it's almost impossible to pick one moment in particular that, that stands out. But when you do look back on your career, is there a particular transaction or client experience or moment that really stands out and you think that was that was incredible and I'm going to remember that forever? Uh,
0: possibly as a consequence of being here so long, there is not one, I'm afraid. I, I would love to say there is one, but there are two or three um, which stand out in my mind. And if I can work backwards, you know, the, the, the highlight of my career has to be being given the opportunity uh, uh, of being the senior partner of Knight Frank. It, it was regarded by me as being an enormous privilege in 2013, and, and it is an enormous privilege still for me today. I don't take it for granted, I give it everything I possibly can. Uh, as I say, certainly not always uh, the right outcomes but the best i can possibly give and, and and then sequentially if you like being appointed head of commercial division was a great boost a great moment I, I i i cherished it little did i know that i was taking it on a year before the global financial crisis but perhaps that's for later um, in terms of deals there are always two or three things that are highlights in my mind Um, I led the team that got appointed to sell the Battersea Power Station uh, site back in 2011-2012. I hasten to add I didn't go on and do the hard work, which was to develop the transaction, but I I did lead the team, which was a very proud moment for me, because it was an acknowledgement by our clients that we had the capabilities globally and across sectors to deliver a solution, which indeed we followed up by doing. Uh, I acquired two buildings early in my career down at Canary Wharf, one for Reader's Digest Association, uh, one for Texaco, an oil company back in the day, and and possibly in the out-of-town office market, closing a deal with Cisco at Green Park in Reading, which I'd worked on for 10 or 15 years with um, the Prudential at the time, now M&G, w- 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 was another highlight. So um, those are just a few of the... Things that I will remember fondly as I reflect upon my career at night, Frank.
1: Mm, no, those are some amazing experiences and amazing stories. And if we had the time, I'd love to dig into all of them and find out more. But I I was really interested in the sort of a side comment you made about about taking over the commercial business, becoming the head of commercial um, at the onset of the global financial crisis. And a few people have spoken on this podcast about the impact that, that the sort of 2008 recession had on them both personally and professionally, but I wonder what impact did it have on on you, especially at a time when you were taking on such a seismic role within the commercial property industry
0: I, I can remember remember it very, very distinctly because when I took over the commercial business, it was doing really really well, uh, and the markets were strong as indeed they were residentially. but my focus at that time was the commercial business and In a relatively short period of time, I can remember thinking, this is great and and not too difficult. Little did I know there was talk of the American subprime crisis, um, which I thought would have absolutely no ramifications on the UK market. Little little did I know that months later uh, we were in the middle of the biggest financial crisis that had been experienced in my lifetime possibly the biggest one post-war that the firm had had to go through. And of course, we all learnt, because again, a bit like the pandemic in the last 12 months, we didn't actually know what the consequences were. For me, the lesson in life was that, that, you know, businesses can't be taken for granted. You cannot assume things are gonna go on and on as they are. So you've got to be prepared. You've got to be agile. The underpinning platform of the business has got to be in good shape. You need a great team around you and a combination of those ingredients enable you to take a step back, look at the circumstances around you, liaise with your colleagues, and then do the best you possibly can, knowing, unfortunately, that you will make some decisions which you either regret or are wrong. But if it's a consequence of all of your actions, you can look back and think that upon reflection, the majority have been the right ones, then I think any person, any manager, any team can say, you know what? In the circumstances, we did a good job. And knowing that, and and this was the thing that dwelt on my mind during the financial crisis, my first management crisis was you cannot dismantle the business so whatever you've got to do to adjust the nature and scale of the business you can't dismantle it because when things turn as they always do you've got to be ready you've got to be ready to service your clients you've got to get ready to engage with your teams you've got to get ready to prepare the research you've got to get ready to do deals and you can't do that if you dismantle the business too much so it was Always on my mind that we needed to do everything we could to contain our costs, to manage what we had, but not to dismantle it. Establishing a, a, a key set of ingredients, which was trade profitably, don't incur any debt, remain in control. Three lessons which I learned during that period and have never left me and have fortunately seen us soundly through the last 12 months.
1: Mm, Yeah, that was what I was going to follow up with asking, actually, was do you think that through going through the global financial crisis, you were better prepared to deal with COVID, even though they were vastly different situations? Do you think that that same sort of attitude towards not dismantling the business and actually just making it adapt to the situation, do you think that that served you well in this situation as well?
0: Without any doubt at all. It certainly gave me more confidence. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not a naturally overly confident person. So um, when we went into this crisis, I didn't know what was going to happen. How could I know what was going to happen? Nobody knew what was going to happen, but I did feel a heavy burden of responsibility to ensure that we protected the business. We protected as many people as we possibly could within the business, that we were ready to serve our clients during the crisis and able to respond to their needs during that period. And also when the crisis subsides, as I say, as they always do. And there's no question that the experience of managing the business through the global financial crisis gave me some really, really valuable lessons to respond to the last 12 months, which we put into action, probably with more conviction and more speed than we would have done otherwise
1: yeah absolutely and you you sort of dropped in there a comment about about confidence and we've spoken about confidence before and I I think it's a re- again we've we've spoken about lots of lots of really important things in this conversation and touched on sort of personality traits and innate traits within oneself that, that you think make you successful and have, have formed the way you've got to today but I I am really interested in confidence and I think a lot of the time we assume that people in positions of leadership, as we've spoken about already, are confident people. And I'd just be interested to ask why you wouldn't naturally describe yourself as confident, because from an external perspective, you would be the sort of person that people would assume was confident.
0: Look, I I don't want to appear immodest, but I understand that that is people's perceptions, that, that any leader of a business that is often... Uh, speaking publicly or on the media or being quoted in the press must be confident. And the reason I say I'm not naturally confident is is because I get, you know, I get nervous. I get nervous like anybody else. I'm nervous doing this. Um, But but I think there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I think what I taught myself to do is to be as prepared as I possibly could be for each event I'm going into whether it is a meeting with a client, whether it's an appraisal with a colleague, uh, whether it's live broadcast media here or somewhere around the world, is to understand the subject and to be as prepared as I possibly could be. As, As long as I've done all the homework I can do, I'm going to be in the best possible position to deal with the circumstances. So when I do a presentation and I stand on the stage, I have done the best I can do in preparation. And that's... All I can all I can say, and and that gives me a style that might come across as being confident, but what I would describe it as is preparedness. I remember very early on in my career, um, I went on a presentation training course, and it was run by a delightful gentleman called Ridian Vaughan, who who continuously during his teachings smoke to pipe imagine that today he'd be arrested but anyway (laughs) he would puff away on his pipe and teach us how to present and he taught me one thing or said one thing which has stuck with me all through my career and that is that anybody is nervous anybody is apprehensive about a new situation anybody standing in front of an audience is nervous anyone gets butterflies the key is to be prepared to get the butterflies in order and then you'll be set fair and it's never been lost on me so all I can say is that the only reason I can come across as being confident is because I'm prepared it could mean it's because you know your subject but that again is because you are prepared so um, one of my learnings is always make sure you're prepared And and I'm quite an organized person so you know if I've got a presentation to give I'll make sure I've done all the work i need to do in order to give the best possible presentation i can do.
1: Mm, no, i love that. i think that's that's brilliant advice because i think we is it's in the same it's the age that we live now where everything is digital. it feels like sometimes oh i don't need to prepare or it'll be fine because you're doing it over zoom or teams or whatever. and actually i think there is a real art to kind of that preparedness and being able to present yourself in a way and feeling not confident in yourself but feeling confident in your knowledge that you're able to do it so I think that's a really valuable thing to to discuss there and we've spoken a lot about about your role as a senior partner, partner and group chairman and the management roles that you've had throughout your time at night frank and Last week, it was announced that next year you will be uh, retiring from Knight Frank and stepping down from the position that you're in. And I'd be really interested to know. And I suppose this is a question that won't necessarily come come naturally to you to answer because it it can feel a little bit egotistical and and, and immodest. But when you look back on on your time at the business and in your your time as senior partner and group chairman, when you do step down next year what do you hope your your legacy will be what do you hope that you're leaving behind at night frank
0: oh goodness that's a big question look i mean having having been here for 38 years and and um uh knocking on 39 um it's i've not known anywhere else to work so it's difficult for me to be intelligent and objective in the question you've asked i think but I hope I've left a business, or will leave a business, that will be better connected. Uh, you know, if you reflect upon our purpose and values as we are restating at the moment, which which I'm absolutely behind, I, I think they're core to the ingredients that, that make Knight Frank the great business it is today. That we value the individual, that we really want to work to make the difference, that we focus on collaboration to succeed, and we commit to partnership. And, and, and I hope that, that the period I've been in the business has enabled people to have greater confidence than ever that the partnership platform is the right platform to continue to use to build the business to greater heights in the next 125 years. So I, I, I think there's a huge amount for Knight Frank to go for. And, and if I've made a touch of difference to enable it to respond to the markets that are ahead, then I, I will I will sleep peacefully. What I do know is that of all the things I had in my mind when I took this job eight years ago, I've done hardly any of them. So so there's a great deal for my successor to do, and indeed for my last twelve months, which I'm just starting, I'm going to have a very busy time. So. I, I, I think I hope, above all else, that, that the people in the business believe in the partnership, see its value, and, and are supportive of keeping that structure uh, going forward.
1: Mm, no, I think that's that's a brilliant legacy to leave behind. And I think, yeah, it sounds like it'll be a manic but very exciting 12 months to come as well. And you spoke there about uh, our 125th year and the fact that we've restated our values, purposes and, and behaviours when we look forward to the next 125 years. And so for anybody who is listening to this podcast and is aware of the fact of our 125th anniversary but doesn't know sort of what we're talking about when we discuss values and purposes and behaviours, would you be able to describe a little bit about what these are?
0: So led by a whole raft of people around the business and working with a couple of external agencies, not least of all a firm called Wiser, who have helped us recently with our early careers uh, we concluded it was time to coincide with our 125th anniversary and to set out our store for the future to to re-explore and restate our purpose Uh, and we concluded that our purpose is to be committed to working responsibly uh, in partnership to enhance people's lives and environments because because that's what we do for for the people that work with us and for our clients we do, we wanna make a difference because what we deal with are their homes and their workplaces and where they go on holiday. And, and the, the really exciting thing about real estate today is that it touches everybody in whatever they do every single day. So we've got a, a, a great role to play and it's really, really exciting. So I don't believe it is too egotistical at all to, to set that clearly as our as our purpose to enhance people's lives and, and environments. And with with regard to our values specifically, to value the individual, to, to, to make the difference, to collaborate, to succeed, and to commit to partnership, uh, I, I think of four incredibly relevant and plausible ingredients that we can leverage, but really represent, what we are and what we need to be better at going forward
1: brilliant and i will make sure that we link to all of the amazing things that we're putting out for our 125th anniversary in the show notes of this episode so that everybody can go and check out the great work that that we and wiser have put together um and the final question that i wanted to ask you before we move on to our our quickfire round is that reflecting on on the past 40 years and in fact the past almost 40 years and reflecting on the 125 years of of Knight Frank's history, you'll have witnessed some monumental changes both within the firm and the wider market. What would you say has been, and again this is a difficult question to narrow down to just one thing I imagine, but what would you say is the most interesting shift you've noticed in either the property industry or Knight Frank as a firm over the past 40 or indeed 125 years if you look at it historically?
0: Well, I, 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 two different things, two different answers, if I may. One, one in respect of the industry. I think the industry is much more dynamic, much more exciting than when I started. And I, I can only t- speak for the period since 1983, really. But, you know, when I started, it was commercial was offices, shops, industrial. And then there was a gap and it was residential. Now it is all intertwined. It is inextricably linked whether it's our private wealth clients who want to buy beautiful homes around the world but they also want to invest in commercial real estate or whether it's our development clients who want to get the best value for land which means very often a mixed-use development as opposed to 40 years ago when they just wanted to build an office building or a shopping centre and now you've got student property, you've got hospitals, you've got healthcare, you've got pubs, you've got hotels. It has all merged into a real estate offering, which offers so much more depth and breadth, which I think is an incredibly exciting prospect for anybody entering real estate now. So I'm asked on occasions, would I recommend somebody to go into real estate? Well, if I would have done it in 1983, I would do it fivefold now, because I think there is so much more depth and breadth to a career in real estate and there is so much more opportunity in 2021 going forward than there was in in 1983 and I thought there was a lot to go for in 1983 so for those people who are hesitant about real estate don't be I think within within the firm we've now got a proper global community so we've got a global platform that we can be really proud of and confident about. Not arrogant, but confident about. We have proven over the last 10 or 15 years that when we galvanise our resources together, we can win any job on the planet and exceed our clients' expectations. And I, and I think that's an incredible thing for the business to have achieved. It doesn't mean to say we're all things to all people. doesn't mean to say we'll win every job. What it means is, we have got the collaborative approach and the depth and breadth of skills in the firm, that when a client offers us a job, it doesn't matter where it is, doesn't matter what it is, but we have got a great chance of winning it and we have got a great chance of executing it ourselves. And I, and I believe in, in, in that regard, the global connectivity is the thing that has probably changed most. I I should probably just mention technology. We're we're spending many, many millions of pounds every year in in technology. We we paused a bit 12 months ago whilst we grappled with the implications of the pandemic, of course, but we are now supporting our biggest investment programme in technology in our history. But I would still remind everybody that for the foreseeable future, and I mean Decades, I don't mean years. I believe real estate is going to be about individual interaction and best advice, linking with our clients and customers around the world on a very personal personal basis, supported by the best data and the best technology, not a technology company. And I believe that is a big differentiator which if we use it effectively, can give us an even stronger platform going forward. To equip our fantastic people around the world with the best technological platform we can afford will set us up for greater success going forward. Of that, I have no doubt at all.
1: Amazing. I think that's a really empowering and inspirational note to to end that section of our conversation on. And so to begin to wrap up every podcast we do a quick fire round and the first question of which is city or country city classic or contemporary classic penthouse or townhouse townhouse call or email call baker street or working from home
0: baker street
1: instagram or linkedin linkedin and finally offices or farms offices And so the final question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast is that now in our 125th year of being Knight Frank, what does being a partner in property mean to you?
0: Look, being a partner in property uh, for me is about engagement, engagement with our people across the business and engagement with our clients. I, I think the depth and breadth of people that we have within the business and we have access to invigorates me every day so being a partner in property to me is engagement with our people internally and our clients externally and that's something i never get bored of
1: brilliant alice thank you so much this has been a, a great conversation
0: thank you very much indeed i've thoroughly enjoyed it
1: thanks so much for listening to this episode of at home with This marks the end of season three, and what a series it has been. We'll be back in a couple of months' time with even more brilliant guests. And in the meantime, if you're needing your At Home With Fix, there's over 30 episodes in our backcast log for you to tap into. And make sure you're interacting with us on social media so we can get your thoughts on what you think about the podcast. I'll see you in a couple of months' time.